those cultural differences have um, kind of been magnified to, to, to an extent where there's no kind of link between two cultures. And that has been used as a, um, as a reason to deny people in the global south their rights. This is Declarations. I'm Nisha Vastani. I'm going to be your host for the season. And this is the first episode of season four. So for those of you who've been listening all along since we started four years ago, um, this is a really exciting day. And we're joined today by our four new panelists. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi everyone, my name is Mona. Um, I'm a master's student in international relations and politics here at Cambridge. I'm interested in going into international law and international conflict negotiation. And my particular interest is looking at um, how human rights are expressed within our institutional international framework, um, the legality of human rights and immigration law. Yeah, hi everyone, wherever and however you're listening to us. My name is Gerald Ahenimano. I'm a Ghanaian. I am reading African Studies in Phil at Cambridge at the moment, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you on issues of human rights, especially rights that are less spoken about, so that collectively we realize and, um, and find a way of championing the rights of all persons, regardless of where you are and who you are. Hi, I'm uh, Jonas, also studying MPhil in African Studies here at Cambridge. Um, my interest is in human rights, um, mainly about refugee rights around Europe. I've done a bit of work towards that, but mainly I'm focused on currently, well, not for my studies, but particularly for my activism. I'm interested in Europe's um, kind of um, approach towards um, stopping migration to uh, mainland Europe. Um, this goes back to the Carton process. Uh, stopping people at Libya and beyond Libya. Hi, my name is Katrin Wittig. I'm a postdoctoral researcher um, at POLIS here in Cambridge. And uh, I'm very interested in looking at uh, how to integrate rebel groups into mediation processes. Uh, before um, joining uh, Cambridge, I worked uh, with the Mediation Support Unit uh, with the United Nations. And I'm also extremely interested in human rights and have been volunteering with several human rights organizations. So I'm very excited um, to join this podcast to also look at different um, issues here in Cambridge um, that are important for human rights issues, but also beyond um, in, on the African continent that I've been extremely interested and focused on. That's great. Thank you so much. So you're all coming from different research interests, um, and I would love to do an episode on every one of your topics of interest. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, maybe we'll get to that. Um, but before that, uh, every season, we like to start by having kind of a broader conversation about what we think, um, where we're at right now in the world of human rights. What are you thinking about the most pressing human rights issues today? What's on your mind? Um, what do you think we're not paying enough attention to? Um, I think in this day and age, we need to look at, you know, the sort of resurgence of um, populism and hyper-nationalism and the implications that that has um, 
on on the individual. I think we need to look at human rights not as just sort of a theoretical concept that all exi- that everyone has that we all have these universal principles of human rights, but we need to look at how that's practically applied and how those um, and how those human rights are sort of manifested in, in the lived experiences of everyday people. There are people every day who do not have sort of a mechanism for sort of asserting their rights. And so how do we give them a voice? How do we give them um, a place within the institutional legal framework to assert their rights? And how do we sort of share their stories so that more people are aware and we start to think of each other as sort of a community of both of human beings as opposed to a community of you know nations, which is where I see um, things going nowadays. Yeah, and um, human rights issues, I think that it's supposed or it is a duty of everyone, wherever that you are, to, to, to engage in such advocacy. It should be a top priority of everyone because you don't respect humanity because of opportunity or superiority. You do so for purposes of reciprocity. So it is important that we empathize with all groups and respect their rights as such, not necessarily because maybe we believe in what they do or we believe in who they are, but because of their humanity. So um, I, I think that the least paid attention to in terms of human rights must be brought to the fore. So looking at the rights of inmates, for instance, what what do inmates go through if they are incarcerated? And even when they are outside and when they serve their term and they are out of prison, how do we see them in the society? What kind of rights do they access? Do we stigmatize or otherwise? It is important that we uplift the image of such people and respect them as they are. Again, looking at persons with disability across the world, of course, there are many international and domestic um, frameworks that protect and uh, uphold the rights of these individuals. But are these frameworks implemented on the ground? Are we seeing the realistic aspects of it? These are matters that we need to put into perspective and then discuss them widely so that such people are also seen as part of the society, as assets rather than liability on the society. And very finally, another important issue that we need to pay attention to is climate change. I mean, in other words, the environment and the human rights issues, um, the changing of climate and the impact on human rights and how best we'll be able to reconcile the two phenomena. So I think it's very much important. And in the coming weeks, we're looking forward to um, broadening and then expanding on such topics and more. Yeah, to build on what Muno was saying, I think the um, main concern of our time has been migration and um, the number of displaced people around the world. Um, I mean, we kind of hear on this on the news, mainly in Europe, um, mainly people coming from places where there is conflict. Um, but the narrative has always been how to stop migration, not how to accommodate it. And I think if there is anything that we're not paying attention to is, um, I think we get to this in a later episode, but... Um, how does Europe deal with migration to its shores? And I think we've seen it from Lampedusa. This was in 2014 or 15, I believe. Um, and since then, what has Europe done towards uh, migration? And one of the things that people are not paying attention to is the um, the carton process, which has been at the foreground. So you don't see it in the media, but um, it's been talked about in the academic circles, in the policy circles, but not in the mainstream media. And what the Carlton process does is, um, this is the um, deal between the EU and the countries in the Sub-Saharan Africa um, to stop migration along the routes of, um, say, starting from the Horn of Africa all the way to 
Libya. And in that, uh, the EU is kind of funding a lot of um, what you would typically uh, consider authoritarian governments, um, which are um, in many, in many cases, the source of the migration themselves. And a lot of people are not aware of this, um, but this is kind of done in the background where uh, it's not gaining the attention of the mainstream media. Um, and at the same time, there is no policy towards how to control mig migration from the international community. So it's always been about stopping them. But what can we do to um, kind of first stop migration from starting in the first place about the conflicts that are going on around the world? But moving on from that, once people have kind of displaced or people moving out, out, outside of their countries, what do we do to accommodate them? Um, yeah, I think I also just want to go um, off what, what Muna and uh, Jalot were saying. I think I'm very interested in the lived experiences of today. I think especially um, um, I was reading up a lot on the United Nations trying to put potentially invoke a right um, to a healthy environment. And I was thinking a lot about what that actually means uh, for us in our everyday lives. Especially here in Cambridge, uh, I was very um, still surprised that there are one glazed windows. And I think if you would reduce those, um, apparently your electricity bill could go down 25%. So that's actually a cost insensitive. But at the same time, it's also something that could really help the environment. So I think what I would be interesting to explore is in our daily life, what can we do for climate change? Yeah, so I think... In the past, something we've really struggled with, I mean, this is the big question of human rights, is at what level do we take action? And I think uh, individual action, obviously there's the problem of scale. Um, how do you scale something up? Um, you can talk about cultural change, you can talk about changing the discourse around something so that policy takes a different form. Um, and that's important, but it's slow. Um, at the structural level, and Muna spoke to this, um, You know, there's often frameworks there, but then when you look at people's lived experiences, sometimes people don't even know about the rights they have. So then you get stuck. But when we spoke to you all first during um, when we were just getting the season started, something that really struck me was a tone of optimism, if that's the correct word, or not complete disillusionment with the framework of human rights. Um, so I want to start talking about that. I think we sort of have to be a little bit idealistic and say that, you know, if we start with ourselves, with informing others, with helping others, if we have the chance, um, if we can, um, if we start by telling other people's stories, by giving them a voice um, and a mechanism for action, if we start by, you know, holding people accountable for their actions and to not sitting still um, and sitting idle while things, injustices and grave injustices go on in the world, um, I think we can start sort of a change from the bottom up, I would say. I think it starts with us as like, you know, the populations that vote for our governments, that vote for the people in power to actually take, um, to take, to sort of make a change and to take, to take a hard a, a stance on what we believe is justice and what we believe is injustice. Yeah, so I, I largely agree with um, what the point Muna is making, and I think it's very much fantastic. One right that I see is rapidly growing is access to education, the right to um, education. So we could start also from the curriculum level, um, inputting um, 
making sure that the curriculum covers a lot of human rights, making people understand right from the basic level that issues of human rights are very much important and you need to respect the rights of all persons regardless of their background or regardless of who they are. Then at the national level, we frame these policies to uh, protect these rights. So the willingness of various governments in various countries would also play a crucial role. Then you get to the international level, the international organizations, the EU, the UN, the AU, the, the ECOWAS and the like. That's where we could also take it up. So it again takes me to the point of Muna that, I mean, these international organizations are, I mean, sort of toothless if countries are not willing right so if from the national level we develop a very formidable framework we could take it to the international level such that we draw up a collective plan and a collective framework such that all governments are willing to implement and to ensure that all rights of persons are, are held as it's supposed to be yeah and I, I think you mentioned about um how human rights are kind of not abstract but they have a practical dimension to them and I think when, when I think about that question um, I, I always think about the north and south divide so in this part of the world it's not abstract I mean you can practice your human rights you you can demand it you can exercise it um, whereas we, we take the human rights as it is to the, to the to the global south for instance it's not um that's where it's abstract or it's not practiced and I think um, that, that when, when I talk about optimism, I think um, we need to be a bit careful about um, thinking about whether this um, the, the, the era that we're in, um, especially in the West, most people are kind of aware of what human rights violations are. And, and partly because, uh, not to say that there's no human rights violation on this side of the world, but the optimism is mostly in the West, not in the South. Uh, so as someone from the global South, when I think about human rights, we have a long way to go. Um, so in terms of optimism, I am optimist in, in the sense that I'm living in the West now. But for those people who are living in the South, um, there's no such thing as um, when, when they think about human rights. And, and of course, I don't want to generalize, but the general consensus is that people don't really exercise these rights and they, they, these rights are not afforded to them by the governments that, that, um, that are supposed to kind of, you know, uphold the human rights, even if they are signatories to the UN Human Rights Declaration. Uh, but there is, again, even in the South, there is some optimism um, in a sense that people are kind of, you know, they're demonstrating, as we've seen in the Arab Spring, for instance, um, or in, we can talk about, say, for in Eritrea, um, people are starting to kind of demand their rights. So there is some sense of optimism, but not to the, to the extent that we think it is in the West. I think in the Global South, there's a lot of interesting... You know, like you said, like people are going out on the streets. Um, there's now also an African court uh, for human rights in Arusha that's been um, set up. There's actually quite a lot of NGOs that have put out um, petitions and have sent it to the African court. So I feel a bit more hopeful um, than I think you are. But at the same time, I think it's an interesting conversation. Is that being naive? No, I mean, if I, if I was to, to respond to that, I think... Um not to sound very pessimist about it, but it's, um, you know, we, again, you talked about lived experience. Um, if you look at migration, for instance, um, there's no migration from the north to the south. It's always south to, mm -hmm. south to north. And a lot of people, I mean, uh, the number of refugees, if you look at the numbers now, currently, and starting from, I would say, 2007, that's when the migration started. And that doesn't speak optimism to me. And I think um, 
I do agree with you that there are quite a lot of NGOs, there's quite a lot of work that's been done towards um, human rights in the global south. And this is, not, this is not something to take away from the efforts that, that have been made. But to go back to your point about lived experience, the experience of the individuals that are actually on the ground experiencing this. this we don't, again, we're talking about what should we pay attention to. Um, so most people, when they talk about human rights in the global south, they focus on what the governments are doing, what the NGOs are doing but not actually on the lived experience of people. And if the lived experience has been that great, we wouldn't see, at least from my, from my, from my uh, understanding, a lot of people wouldn't make it to the shores of Europe. I want to come back to that, but first I'll ask Gerald and Muna, I think you both have a point to make about this as well. Yeah, so very quickly, I wanted to touch a bit on the point that um, Jonas was making based on how human rights issues are viewed at the global north and the global south, especially from Africa, where, for instance, I come from. So I think, again, that different strategies need to be employed at different, in different contexts. So in the, African, on, on, in the African society, for instance, not all human rights are really, uh, the people are really willing to uphold, especially if it is um, in tandem, I mean, if it's going against, rather, their, their cultures. Now, mind you, people of Africa are still living with the scale of colonialism, for instance, who believe that, well, there are certain actions and inactions that were imposed on us by the colonial powers in an attempt to erode and uh, erase our cultures. So we're trying to resuscitate the cultures of the continent. So if you take a right like LGBTs, promoting the rights of LGBT people that believe in LGBTQ, it is not something that is going to survive in most African countries because the cultures do not permit people to engage in such an activity. And any attempt by a government, even if a government is willing to draw a framework to protect such people, such a government risk um, the, the tendency of losing in the next election. So I think that the contest is very much important and how to bridge the gap between culture and uh, human rights issues are also stuff that we need to pay much attention to moving forward. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, this is sort of, it builds off um, Gerald's point, but I think, you know, an increasingly complex matter is how do we sort of navigate that space between domestic national law and sort of these universal principles in international law. And so how do you do that? How do you give people human rights within that framework while also not infringing upon a country's sovereignty and a country's national law? And so that goes into a very complex issue that has to do with both culture, um, religion, history, um, you know, the legacies of colonialism, um, and so so many more different things. Yeah, and you mentioned history, and often that gets left out of that, and the history of colonialism, and how do we think of particular cultures. So um, again, I'll speak to a context I know. So um, in Iran, there was some controversy around um, a UN education, the, I think it's the SDGs on education, um, included education about sexuality. Um, and this didn't make it to Western media much, but there was a lot of um, kind of debate between um, different sides on whether it was okay that um, Iran is, um, you know, would implement education as it is being demanded by the SDGs. Um, and there was demands around like culture and we don't want to include X and Y. Um, but then you look at the history of um, 
Iran, of course, never formally colonized, but highly influenced by the West and Western intervention. Um, and you think about the culture around sexuality has actually vastly changed due to that influence. And um, there's a lot of uh, historical texts and historical research that would suggest that actually sexuality was a lot more open and flexible and fluid before those interventions. Um, and now what the culture has become in reaction to the West is actually that it's not that, um, and that, the, that and that like sexuality is too open in the West. I think this is just a discussion to, to be had um, in a way, and I think we've said this with Mona when we were doing interviews, in fact. Um, this is not to take away the cultural differences and um, the other elements, but for me what's more important is how those have been used to deny people their rights. Yeah. Um, and I think um, no one denies that there is a cultural difference. Um, I mean, when I first came to the UK, I mean, it was a cultural shock for me. So you can, you can tell, I mean, you can experience it on a personal level. But what's important is, um, especially when, when you think about sub-Saharan Africa, how those differences are kind of highlighted to, to a greater degree that there is no such thing as, I mean, the way I think about culture is completely different to the one that you that you would normally find in, um, I don't know whether it's... Um, you say Asaforki, or whether it's um, other other government in in Africa that they have a different take on culture. So I always think about culture as in something that's kind of interacting with others. So there's no such thing as a culture that's kind of isolated. To, there's always influences, like you said. I mean, Iran had the Western influence, and then in, and then the revolution happened, and then and things have changed since then. Those cultural differences have um, kind of been magnified to, to to an extent where there's no kind of link between two cultures. And that has been used as a, um, as a reason to deny people in the Global South their rights. We'll be back in a moment. We're back in the studio now with Max Curtis and Matt Mamoudi. They started the podcast in 2016. And seeing as how it's our fourth year, which is kind of unbelievable, we thought we would take a minute and look back at how things have changed and haven't changed in the human rights world and how our conversations are looking different or maybe the same since um, they started. So it's kind of wild, right? Like when we first started the podcast, we were just talking about this. A lot of things that we've kind of we're kind of taking for granted now. It's just status quo. We're just so different and up in the air. Like, obviously, Trump hadn't been elected yet. I don't want to focus this too much on America, but back then, this was in October 2016, the notion of having Trump lead the United States was a bit of a joke, right? Um, and obviously, back then, we were still talking about how notions of human rights as a language versus a legalistic frame were very distinct realms and how the two shouldn't be conflated and that human rights could often be co-optive and that's a conversation that i feel has continued but how has it been shaped by maybe some of the global events that have shaken up human rights and politics yeah i suppose when we started this podcast um there really wasn't this sort of politics of possibility that we have now where it seems like pretty much anything strange or bizarre can possibly happen um back then there was much more of a serious debate about whether human rights as a concept was something that, you know, even is worth valuing in some ways. Um, we can still be obviously very critical about how human rights as a concept are deployed, but 
in a lot of ways, I think the past couple of years, the reactionary swing um, across the world has, I think, really entrenched our sense that the conversation around human rights is more important now than ever, that when people are putting these concepts under assault, you know, we it's now more than ever that we have to reevaluate them and reassess what about them are worth saving. Mm-hmm. I do want to be careful about this us, though. So are we saying now us on the podcast um, mm-hmm. sitting here are finding these concepts more pressing? Because um, I'm sure there was moments in the Obama presidency, let's say, um, with like drone assassination campaigns, um, where other people might have said, this is the moment, like it's really pressing, we need to be talking about these things. For sure. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I would push back a little bit at Max as well, like saying that like the notion of something that's um, framed within a concept of emancipation has certainly become more pressing now. And maybe it's, it's especially interesting to think about whether that is human rights coming from your perspective, Nyusha, having sort of sat at the precipice between the old podcast and the new podcast, so to speak, because you came in to our second year and has since then sort of been a part of it. Um, so maybe that's something that, 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 that you could reflect on as well. Like, what is it about the human rights conversation that is or is not pressing right now as we move forwards? Well, I'd also like to push back a bit on Max. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love when Max pushes back on Max. <laughs> yeah, because I think, um, you know, compared to what that random guy was saying back there, um, I think definitely the thing that has changed most about human rights, I think we can all still agree that, like, we should especially be very critical of the rights discourse. But I think what I mean is that what's most changed is the reevaluation of politics as a very human subject. I think when we started this and um, Matt and I were both doing our MPhils and everything felt just a little staler, I guess. Like, you know, everything, I don't know, politics just still felt like it was the realm of people in suits doing foreign policy in a very boring kind of way. Not to say that this excitement has really been something we should necessarily enjoy, but like, I don't know. um, Rights discourses are still problematic in so many ways, but I think, if anything, one positive of still doing a podcast about human rights three years later is that we are valuing uh, politics as the realm of human drama and human discourses. Though I think even before maybe we can talk about some kind of shift or things started to shift. That was also part of the reason from my understanding that you started this podcast was to highlight the human element of human rights and kind of rest that um, language framework out of this highly inaccessible language um, where people who might be more most desperate for recourse to their human rights actually can't get into the framework, can't um, have no way of making it actionable. Um, maybe we can think about how that's played out throughout the podcast. I think it's definitely true that um, in the past couple of years, human rights has become a much more accessible concept to the extent that people, in, in the same sort of way that you're talking about, feel like they kind of have to access the idea of human rights in order to make some sort of political statement about how they're being oppressed or, um, you know, overly criticized or whatever. It's just become a concept that, for various obvious reasons, is incredibly urgent at the moment. 
At the same time, though, do you think sometimes we've fallen into kind of romanticizing the everyday? Hmm. Romanticizing human rights or romanticizing the everyday? I'm literally just going to ask that, yeah. Hmm. Even though we're a human rights podcast, I personally don't, don't have an attachment to the notion that emancipation or equality can only be accessed through the language of human rights. Right? That's just one opportunity. Maybe it's not the right way to talk about it. Right? Like that might be a possibility, in which case we've romanticized human rights. But you're right. Maybe we've romanticized the everyday, and maybe what we need is a more stringent sense of what human rights are and how they should be enforced. I don't think there's clarity on that yet. Well, I just wonder if sometimes in trying to get around or resist the inaccessibility mm-hmm. of legalistic frameworks, international organizations, etc. Like everything that's big and scary. Um, if there's a tendency to be like the quote-unquote real fight is happening on the ground and is happening in the everyday, which I agree with, um, but I wonder if there's what's still missing or maybe something that we should be thinking about talking about more is like the in-between those two Mm -hmm. things. Like, not one over the other, but one being, yeah, one being more important than the other, one being more effective than the other, though I do personally think um, bottom-up things are more effective or are the actual push for change. Um, But maybe something we haven't thought about enough is what happens in between. I guess regardless of our dialogue shifting towards the everyday and shifting towards everyday struggle, like international organizations are going to continue doing what they do, right? And fact-finding and investigative bodies and like judicial mechanisms and all of this lies within that realm. You're absolutely right. There's no way of challenging the inequities that exist within that kind of, again, legalistically framed human rights without also like being willing to talk about human rights that's also existing in this realm. So I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's something we should definitely focus on. One thing that I've been wondering is to what extent the in-between can also serve as a space within which we dream up new possibilities. Because one of the things that has been so apparent to me and that has led me to somewhat not entirely give up, but at least look with more skepticism towards the institutional sort of framing of human rights has been that we don't really seem to accept or realize that these things are as made up as anything else, right? Like we've decided that they should exist and therefore they exist. There's consensus around the idea that there should be accountability mechanisms. And at some point, you know, in the late forties, we decided that they should look that the way that they currently do. And we've just decided to continue with that. But if we can intervene in the in-between and dream of new ways in which the sort of institutional or, you know, the sort of transnational connects to the everyday experiences, like that could be potentially really powerful for thinking about new ways of conducting ourselves in terms of justice and human rights. And I think that's that part of it in terms of what you're suggesting, Yusha, is like what we should be striving towards, thinking about spaces that allow us to create new possibilities, both institutionally and at the everyday level. Yeah, and this goes back to something we've been talking about for three years, (laughs) Um, which is what are we talking about when we talk about human rights? Mm -hmm. And there's one way of answering that, which I think is maybe the researcher's approach, which is that we're trying to distill 
and maybe that's what I'm getting at when I talk about the romanticization of everyday. So one approach would be to really look really hard and try to find the right place to look, to find the correct objective thing that exists that we can call human rights or lack thereof is like a fact-finding mission, um, which is important, obviously, to know how human rights exist or come to exist. But another approach or another interpretation of the question, what are we talking about when we talk about human rights, is what do we want to be talking about when we talk about human rights mm, or yeah. how do we construct it? Um, yeah. Like what would be helpful, I guess, for audience as well who are joining us having been part of this for, for three years or new audience sort of checking in, like maybe you can reflect real quick on like what the impetus for starting this podcast was. Boredom? Come on. <laughs> yeah, so I guess when we started this three years ago, the idea was definitely to put people into the same room who normally wouldn't be put into conversation with one another. Academics and activists who are often in their own separate realms, whereas nowadays that kind of separation, um, I don't know, doesn't seem so rigid. Although we've been doing this podcast for over three years now, we definitely don't have all the answers to this. You know, human rights is an incredibly complex topic, actually. People use it every single day. And yet we really, after almost 50 episodes of this, still don't have a perfect handle on what human rights is or should be. So I think this year our plan is to really re-engage with that basic question and to engage our audience with that a bit more too. So this season, we really want to get you more involved you know, hear from our audience if you message us on Twitter or Facebook or wherever and let us know what are the, some of the underexplored areas of human rights. This season we really want to look at things that haven't been talked about so much, um, not just in the quote-unquote mainstream news or whatever, but things that even aren't necessarily typically thought of as a human rights issue. And if we re-engage with that more, then I think we might have a much better idea of where we go from here. Not just for this podcast, obviously, but, you know, for, poli for politics generally. So thank you for listening. We've talked to our new panelists today, as well as Matt and Max from the first season. So let us know what new things have you been saying in the human rights world? What should we be talking about when we talk about human rights? And what are we talking about when we talk about them? So we want to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter at DeclarationsPod, like us on Facebook, or send us an email at editor at DeclarationsPod.com. Tune in next time for more Declarations. Declarations.